This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women, and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away, to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? Hello, I'm Suna Ardam from The New European. And I'm Corny Chanela, also from The New European. We first came to the story when we were just drawn to it, really. It's such a dreadful, dreadful event. So many people died. 
and we found that it was reported reasonably extensively and then it disappeared. Then we heard about how um, we had to push back all these migrants and how it was a danger and we had to get harsher and change the policies. And it just felt to us that these real people, these humans in there were just being forgotten and their story was being overtaken. And we just thought that you needed to dig down a bit more. Why did they come? We don't know. We just make assumptions. We just call them migrants. We don't even call them, we don't even treat them like humans. And um, we just felt that we just felt that was wrong. I think also given the context of that particular week, the story broke and um, the people died, I think, on November 24th and um, the headlines in the papers those days uh, that day um, concerned the CBI speech by Boris Johnson, the disastrous Peppa Pig references. It was also the time of the emergence of Omicron. So there were a lot of things going on in the news. And while there was a lot of reporting done initially, because of course this is the worst tragedy of its kind in the channel. So there was interest also because we had already had stories about the numbers of people arriving in November on our shores. And we were having something of a government push to send out the message that they would deal with this. But given all of that background noise, the story, while it rose to the surface for a while, just because of the pure human tragedy, it was soon subsumed by these other stories, the coronavirus pandemic and the endless um, shuffling of scandals in the government. I think we forget that these are people with families, with parents, with children, with hopes. They're people like us. We were reading about them. One of them loves playing, one of them loves playing football. Um, the other hangs out with his friends and plays music. They're just not very different at all. And we really wanted to get this across because the narrative is just so different from the reality. And it's so cold and so dehumanizing. I think one of the things you note um, around these narratives is that you generally get a collective view. So what we tend to do is a game of numbers in the British media. Um, again, I was referencing how the weekend before this tragedy happened, on the Friday, 1,185 people arrived on British shores. That was the story. And then it became a political story about Home Secretary Priti Patel and what she was going to do to um, deal with this what is called a migrant crisis, although, you know, whether it is a crisis or not um, is very debatable. What it is, is a human crisis. And I think um, what we don't get very often is a look at the real lives of the people who come. We talk about push and pull factors. What we were trying to do in this story was to bring those cold, somewhat callous terms to life so when you talk about a push factor what does that mean why are people willing to take these risks they're not any different from us and I think that is one of the assumptions that needs to be challenged this sense that you must be a little bit strange to put your children in a boat when the question that should be asked is why are you driven to do this? Because we would all do it in certain circumstances. So I think it's that aspect of humanity that is missing from the British media discourse. And that's partly because of the political discourse. We all know how um, 
the arrival of people on our shores has been weaponized for political purposes in the past. The use of words like swarm, the use of very evocative and um, damaging pictures that were used um, not only during the Brexit referendum, but at other times as well. So I think, you know, the, the, the aspect of looking at the humanity of the individuals who are coming, that that is often missing, not always, but often. And uh, you hear people talk about you. You just mentioned um, push factors and pull factors um, and quite a lot you hear in Pretty Patel's discourse, oh, the pull factors, we've got to get rid of them. We've got to stop them coming. We've got to make it so unpleasant here that they don't want to come is the narrative. And um, I've been looking at this on a wider global scale and it's uh, very much the case that there are not that many pull factors. There are many, many more push factors that basically the reasons they have to leave because they're not going to be able to live a life of dignity get a job, look after their children. We know that the majority of the people um, who have been identified came from Iraqi Kurdistan, so the semi-autonomous region of Kurdistan. Um, we know that one person was from uh, was an Iranian Kurd. We also have the identities of a few other people, but not the names. So we know that there were three people from Ethiopia. There were four people from Afghanistan. Um, there was a man from Egypt and a woman from Somalia. So just looking at those areas, it goes straight to what um, Suna was saying about push factors. And another thing they have in common is quite a few of them have friends or relatives in the UK, and that's main reason why they're coming, trying to come here. So you have, um, as a young woman, Mariam, who has a fiance who's British, um, he's living in Britain, he's a barber, and um, she just wanted to come and be with him and she couldn't get a visa or she, she tried, she couldn't get here legally. She has a Schengen visa, um, yet she couldn't come across to the UK. So she decided to try going on a boat. So to you know join the man she's going to marry. Um, others had aunts, they had sisters, they had close friends, they had cousins. So that they that is one thing that they have in common. Relatives here, friends here, people they want to go and stay with. So you hear about some of them who've spoken along the way. Um, there's one girl, uh, Hadier, who is um, the daughter of Hazal, uh, a, a, a woman who came across um, from Iraq with her three children and they all die together. Um, her daughter, her oldest daughter wanted to become an art teacher. She trained in art. She did a lot of sketches of what she saw along the route according to people who met her at the time. Her brother wants to be a barber. They want to improve their English. Then you have um, Tuana, we mentioned him later on, I think he's, uh, he's a really good footballer. He wants to improve himself. Um, you know, they have ambition. And they also, the other thing they have in common is that they managed to somehow raise the money to come across. It's like 20, 30, 40, 50,000 pounds and they have to sell their houses. Um, they have to, you know, they have to get a great difficulty to make this journey. They're not just casually turning up just so that they can get a benefit check. So Twana, um, Mamand Mohammed, um, was 18 years old. He lived in Hajiawa in the Ranya district of Kurdistan. Now, he'd been out of school for a year. Part of that was because of the coronavirus pandemic, and he hadn't been able to get a full-time job. He, his family, his father was a laborer, um, sort of did lifting and moving of building supplies. His mother was a housewife, and Twana was the second youngest of seven. So big family there. He was really into his sports. So he had a black belt in taekwondo. 
and he but but he excelled at football he played for a lot of uh for the local football team but his dream was to play for Manchester City now I spoke to his brother Zana who sent me photographs of Twana in his football kit um one of the kits actually he got pretty close to the sky blue of Manchester City but he he also um there were lots of shots of him in other kits as well so he he would have been quite an ambitious 18 year old and um, he needed to leave because the area is is an area with very high unemployment there's also a drought in Kurdistan the political atmosphere is very repressive um and so Twana will have felt that he wanted something better for his future that's what his brother said his sister Kali was already in the UK living in Sheffield so he wanted to join her and he wanted to see if he he too could make it as a footballer in the UK. So you have um, you know, the people on the journey included um, Zanyar Mustafa Mina he's, he's 20 and he actually came for different reasons. Um, his father was accused of organizing anti-government protests which he says that no, they don't say that that's true but um, he was accused and Boris Zanyar and his family were being persecuted by the um, security forces. His father told him that he should leave to, um, for his own safety. So he knew that some friends of his had made it to the UK and he didn't have a job there because as the economy is very bad, there's only a limited number of jobs. So, uh, and most of them are appropriated sort of according to who you're friendly with. And so he didn't have any prospects. So he had to leave, he felt, because of his safety and his future. And um, He's actually, he's missing now. So his father who sent him <laughs> must be feeling absolutely dreadful at the whole awful, awful story. And um, he doesn't even have a body to bury. Then you've got Muslim Ismail Hamid, who's 19. Um, he had friends and cousins in the UK and his father didn't want him to leave. Um, he really tried to stop him. But one day um, Muslim sat him down. He pleaded him, he hugged him. He said, dad, I really want to go. And his mother said to him, everyone's going, just let him. And that's how he went. Um, he was one of the people who um, traveled up to um, Belarus, um, where um, President Alexander Lukashenko was in the summer. He just opened up um, the borders and said to refugees, well, you can just come up and go through here to Poland, because it was obviously very irritating for the EU, with which he was um, having a bit of a spat at the time. And um, so uh, Muslim went through there. He, he went, walked across to Poland from Belarus, went down to Germany, got a car to France, and he thought he was going to start this new life. Um, and uh, according to his father, there was a very bad, sad story even at the end. He, his father says he's got evidence that um, Muslim was sold to another smuggler. So one smuggler who he'd made a deal with put him on a boat, but he was the only one. So we guess... That would be uneconomical so he put it around the, the um he put it about the smuggler network that he had a spare um migrant and one of them one of the, uh, the one who was running this fateful boat um paid fifteen hundred dollars to take him so i suppose if he'd gone through then he would have recouped the rest of the money it's it's a awful trade and muslim was prey to that i think one of the most uh interesting things that I didn't know before um, doing this story was just how close in geography many of the people who left were. It's 
their homes where they grew up are quite close to each other, um, just a couple of hundred kilometers, in some cases, 40 kilometers apart. And there are very fixed routes. Um, a lot of the people who left flew from Erbil, the capital of Kurdistan, to Istanbul in Turkey. And then you can either get the boat across the Aegean Sea to Italy, a second route, and this is one that Twana took with two of his friends. So he flew from Erbil to Istanbul with two friends. They then decided to take the overland route by going through Bulgaria. This is quite a well-known route, so they would have probably thought, you know, there's a fair chance of getting across, but they were unlucky because they got caught by the guards when they went over the border not only that, before the guards deported them, they took their mobile phones, their money, even their belts. So they ended up back in Istanbul after having tried that route. So you've got the Belarus route, you've got the Bulgaria route. So now they're back in Istanbul, they're regrouping. So they decide we will try the sea. And Zana and Mamand, Twana's brother, told me, that was it. After Bulgaria, he was done with land routes and he wanted to go by the sea. And at this point, and it's hard to exactly understand how the connections were made, but a lot of the young men who ended up on that boat in the channel, they came together in Istanbul and traveled with Twana down to Izmir on the coast and took the boat across to Italy. So a lot of the stories coalesced in Istanbul as the people then made their next stage of the journey across the sea to Italy. And then from there, they traveled upwards to France um, and, and the, the, the ad hoc camps where they wait out there until they get the moment to cross the channel. And another story um, is uh, Marianne, who I've mentioned, who's, uh, you know, her fiancé was a barber in Bournemouth. He had British citizenship. So she tried a few times um, to get a British visa. And um, I've been told by people who live there. Um, I was talking to a Kurdish journalist, actually, who was a British citizen. And he said he just wouldn't bother trying to get any papers for his wife to come to the UK because he said it's just almost impossible the bureaucracy is awful. The money is high. The money is really, you know, it's very expensive. And um, he said, and he said to me, I've been at, I've been following all kinds of awful things, you know, beheadings. I've followed Islamic State about. I've seen violence. I swear, none, nothing keeps me up at night as much as the worry about how I'm going to deal with the British bureaucracy of trying to get my family there. So he doesn't. He lives in um, Kurdistan, even though he's a British citizen. So she dealt a lot with that. And all she wanted was to go and be with her fiance, who, was, who she'd been engaged to for, since last January. Bilin Shukur Bakir, he was 20. He lived in the border region of um, northern Iraq, so Iraqi Kurdistan and Turkey, in, um, in a place called Zaho, which is very mountainous. Um, got some lovely hiking routes, apparently. Um, I have actually been there when, in my previous reporting, and it was surprisingly you know, impressive landscape. However, it's quite a dangerous place because it's on the border. There are a lot of um, Turkish, Kurdish militants or guerrillas, whatever you call them, secessionists. And um, they hide in the mountains in northern Iraq and Turkey is being after them, bombing them. Um, and it makes it very difficult for life for people there. I, when I was working there before, I went and saw quite a few villages where civilians had been killed by this. So he's in a situation where it's not... Um, it's not very stable, it's not easy to live. It's dangerous where he is and he sees no future for himself. So he um, 
decided to leave and um, he went through the Belarus route. Um, he went to Syria first, then Baghdad, then up to Belarus, then he got through to Poland. He had a relative in Germany, so he stayed there for a bit and then he went to France. Um, his contact had been um, a man called Majid, who's a smuggler. And um, when he was in France, the original plan was for Bilind to go across in a lorry. But Majid then rang and said, you can't do that. The, the sniffer dogs, the police of the border police have brought in sniffer dogs. No one's gone past for 18, 20 days. Unless you want to stay here for months and months, you're going to have to try the boat. So that's how he ended up on this boat. And there's um, a really sad anecdote, among all these other sad anecdotes at the best, um, about Billind. When he left, he told a friend, tell people I've wronged to forgive me. And that's apparently a phrase that a lot of Muslims use before they're going to die. You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And I think um, one of the, the, you know, one of the sad things as well is um, this, this movement of people across the channel in small boats. So people like Billand, who decide, decided to take the boat it's also because there are very few alternative routes. So up until 2014, um, most people who would gather in northern France, because the movement was happening then, of course, we were at the, at, at the height of the Syrian war and other conflicts. Most people would try and get across on the ferries or on the trucks and the cars going through the Channel Tunnel. But Britain increased, uh, Britain and France increased security um, uh, quite heavily around those areas. So it's from that moment that the boat routes became more important. And that's why we've had the numbers. So when people talk about a migrant crisis, it is also the fact that it's a boat uh, crisis now is because the other routes have been closed down. One other reason why they have to cross the channel is although they've shut down some of the other road routes, they haven't really got a good system in place for people to come in. There's, a, there's UNHCR resettlement, which means that if, you, if you're very vulnerable and you're in a refugee camp and you've been there for years and years somewhere or in a community in Lebanon starving, then the UNHCR will put the name, across, name up and you will be taken for resettlement. But it's only for certain types of people and the numbers offered, the places offered are really, really small. So that's very, that's, that doesn't really apply to these people. And um, family reunion visas, I believe they've been quite restricted. Um, another route might have been um, a sort of humanitarian visa, but that's not really happening. I think the EU's trying to get something together on that. So even you know, people who have a claim, say someone like Mariam, who has a fiance, she's going to be married to a British citizen. There are very few routes. So Twana regroups in Istanbul. He meets up with several other young men. Some of the, one of them is actually the cousin of his brother's wife, uh, a guy called Haram Piro. They group together and decide to try the sea route. So they head to Ishmir and board a boat. Um, it must have been quite frightening um, the, to cross such a large expanse of sea. So this is in October. They get to Italy after four days at sea. But when they get to Italy, Italy is in lockdown because of the coronavirus pandemic. So they stay put for 11 days and then proceed north to France. Now, there is quite a poignant picture that um, Twana's brother Zana sent me of Twana uh, standing, posing for a photograph in front of the Eiffel Tower on October 25th. 
it's your classic, um, you know, uh, tourist photo. And um, he looks quite self-conscious as 18 year olds are wont to do when someone makes them stand in front of a monument. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a picture of hope. It's a picture in the city of light. But he was only there for a day or two because the next day he was heading north to the coastline of northern France where he found himself living in one of the camps that have sort of developed, if you like, like a growth along the north of France. We had uh, Sangas in the 1990s, which was the big uh, camp there. Then there was the Calais jungle. But Tuan actually found himself in Consent, which is between Dunkirk and Calais. It's home to hundreds of people. And it's actually um, a camp which is known for being home to um, uh, Iraqi Kurds as they wait to cross the channel. And that is where Tuana would have ended up with many of the young men he traveled with. He then tried again and again and again to cross the channel. And this is what is quite heartbreaking about the ultimate journey they made. And this is why one can understand that they had hope of rescue. He had tried this, he had tried to get across six or seven times. He'd always been foiled, but he'd always been brought back. So when he boarded that uh, boat on the 23rd of November from Loon Plage, which is the beach near Dunkirk with the others, they must have felt like, you know, here we go again. But, you know, they would have had numbers with them for the rescue services because this was not their first time. They had done this again and again, and not just Tuana. Many of the others in that boat had tried the crossing before. So although they knew the dangers, they would also have felt that whatever happened, the worst case scenario would be finding themselves back in France, probably in damp clothes, which would never dry in the canvas tents they were living in, shivering and shaking, but ready to go again. And I think that's also something we heard from Tuana Suna when um, in the last conversation, or the conversation he had with Zana, his brother, the day of the, the, uh, the day they, they went to go across the channel. He had spoken to Zana. He'd been supposed to travel the next day, so November 24th, but he said he wanted to bring his journey across the channel, his attempt forward, because the French police had raided the camp where he was. And he said, very, very, in a very sad comment, he, Zana told me that he said, please, they don't want us here. We have to go. And I think that is such a heartbreaking sentence to know that on the edge of Europe with all the wealth and, and, uh, and riches that we have, that we are unable to welcome people and that they feel I should just go into the sea, I should risk my life because nobody wants me here. And I think you know that is an indictment of the way we are managing this problem. Of course, in the system, it's it's not just that, you know, there's hostility, people don't want them to come. I mean, obviously, countries want to be in control of the migration that happens at the refugees, the asylum seekers need to have somewhere they can go to. But it's all the hostility without a system that would work. And the system that works doesn't necessarily need to let everybody in. It just needs to be one that's humane and it works and people know the rules and there are provisions. And that seems to be the worst thing of all this. Like all these people are going to be on the move. It's the way of the world. They're 
living in failed states or very bad economic conditions climate change is going to is already having an effect I think um, the the school system in Kurdistan is um, also um, neglected and the state schools are not very good. Uh, private schools are out of reach for most people. Um, many of the young people who traveled had uh, stopped their education or finished their education. Um, it's also uh, an effect of the sort of corrupt governance that you see in Kurdistan um, and also a lack of resources, I think. So the primary driver, from what I can see, or one of the primary drivers for Kazal and her family was exactly that. She said there's no future for the kids. The education is bad. They've got 50% of the population is under 20. So they're all, you know, they haven't got the job prospects. So that's why they went and she has um, her husband, Kazar's husband is a policeman who actually had a job there, um, but they still needed to leave and he stayed behind. They sold the house and he stayed behind with his job so that he wouldn't lose it. So he'd keep earning money until they got to Britain and then he would try um, for the children, for the education. What's the point if the children are not going to get jobs, they're not going to have lives. That's, that was a feeling there. And I think it ties in as, as well to, um, you know, even if you were to get an education, the system of nepotism is so strong that it really depends on who you know um, to get a job. And, and therefore, that would be something as well that would depress young, ambitious people who knew that they weren't going to be close enough to the two dominant parties in Kurdistan to get a job, even if you did get educated there. That's the kind of thing we've heard again and again and again. You know, the government isn't working. It's a, it was an autonomous region. It sort of grew out of a region of northern Iraq, a region of Iraq that was um, attacked by Saddam at the time. And so then they grew into this autonomous um, administration, which actually for quite a while looked like it was going to be OK. But um, it disintegrated recently. It's had you know, they've had. Um, Islamic State as well, of course. Um, they've been the major fighters against Islamic State. There's been the Turkish attacks, but also the two dominant political families, the Barzani and the Tal Talibanis. Um, you know, they've. It's not um, a very equitable situation, let's like say, and they haven't really managed the economy well. And uh, everyone who's younger, who's not in the in the know, just thinks it's jobs for the boys. We're never going to get anything. How are we going to look after our families? Um, so Abdul was a refugee photographer I came across on Twitter um, and I found his mobile phone. It's actually um, his photographs and some of the newspapers in the reporting of the tragedy. Certainly Kazal and her family, he took pictures of them. So he has his own story that he um, worked for NATO and the US in Afghanistan this is five more than five years ago. And um, the Taliban kept trying to shoot him and they did successfully shoot him three times and the last time he was uh he was in hospital for 10 days and he just thought I've got to leave and the American forces for whatever reason they didn't help him um to leave and so he walked out of Afghanistan he has a quite a long story of going to Pakistan being beaten and repatriated going to Iran being beaten and imprisoned he went to Bulgaria, he was beaten, and then he worked a bit in Bulgaria, and he made his way slowly towards France, where he now, after several years, he was granted refugee status. He's working as a photographer, but he's working quite a lot in 
um, northern France, doing a lot of reporting um, photography with uh, of the refugees. He's um, had exhibitions there, so he's he's in a better place now. So he went um, and came across he came across Kazal and her children at this camp, and he was really um, taken by them. He said Kazal was like his mother when he went home. He wanted to ring her and hear her voice just for a bit of comfort. And he was very saddened by their story. He was, he still, he says he still thinks about it. It's very, very disturbing um, because a family, I guess, like his, and here they are in dire straits. And then they, the next day he suddenly finds out they're dead. So he interviewed them along with the British journalist and uh, told us quite a lot about how they were feeling and um, their situation, their personalities that, the children were saying, what's going to be, where they're going to be like in Britain. Um, they said, oh, we're going to learn some English. This is going to be great. We're going to get educated. And, you know, Kazal's sadness, he said she was so tired that she could barely speak. And actually they'd agreed to go and talk to her again later. But of course, that was the last time he saw her. So Abdul was, um, he gave us a really good sense and a haunting portrait of their stories with a bit of his own story added in. Um, it's quite hard to trace their stories, partly because they're all dead. There was one um, survivor, Mohammed Shekhar, who did tell his story at the beginning, but um, he's been threatened by uh, smugglers, so he's now gone underground. So we had his initial interviews, reported interviews to go with. Um, otherwise, there was a lot of reporting which is, wasn't really pieced together. So we picked out with tweezers every reference, everything we could find tried to put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. We tried to find people who might have met them like Abdul or who might have, or their relatives. Um, we went to quite a few uh, refugee charities, but a lot of them didn't know, especially not in Britain, because it's, a, it's not a story that usually gets very far. I think the other, the other, one of the other issues perhaps was um, it was so sensitive at the time. Uh, initially, a few details came out of some of the people who died. But of course, the bodies had to be identified. And they were held at a morgue in Lille in, in France. And relatives did go and they had to do DNA tests to identify. Now, the French charities and NGOs who work with refugees and asylum seekers were very reluctant to give out any information um, because the families had to be notified, first of all. And also, it's the level of uncertainty. One of the things I found very heartbreaking as we pieced together the stories was that quite a lot of people were misled by the smugglers who told them. Um, and I think including Tuana's brother Zana, initially he was told, no, your brother made it. It's okay. Don't worry. Go to sleep. It's fine. So it wasn't until um, more than 24 hours later that he found out that his brother has died. Similarly, um, Muslim's father, it took him more than 20 days in fact to find out that his son had died the smuggler saying oh maybe he was picked up by the german police and it's that idea of people so far away in iraqi kurdistan or in iran or wherever people come from Afga afghanistan ethiopia 
their family members' lives ending in that way and then trying to figure out what happened, trying to, you know, carry out the formalities that um, would enable you, if possible, to get a body back. And these, this is so important. So the initial reporting was also hampered by the fact that you know, people had to be told, family members had to be told, and a lot of people working in this area were reluctant to give out that information until they knew, you know, that that all the relevant other people, just as we would do here, had been informed. Belin's father didn't find out his son had died until he read it in a on a website. Mm. So it is, yeah, it's so sensitive because... In the end, of course, what we have to do to try and find out is to track down these family members who are traumatised and see if anyone will talk to us, which is a horrible thing to have to do. And um, one thing we also found was that even when they were willing, we couldn't, we couldn't speak to them ourselves. We found that um, you know, Clara and I, we both have quite a few languages between us, but none of them stretched to Kurdish and um, none of them seemed to have good enough any of the languages that we had. So what we eventually had to do was, um, I, I spoke to a friend who'd worked in Northern Iraq. She put me in touch with a journalist who then found another journalist who um, offered to uh, help. So we gave her questions and she found the relatives and translated the answers and sent them back to us. And then we put, put this together in our story. And so there was quite a lot of backwards and forwards. And I also spoke to uh, Tomano's brother Zana, but that was um, on WhatsApp. And what he had to do was get a friend who spoke English um, to translate. So we had a three-way call going um, with me asking questions and then his friend translating them and then Zana answering. And um, Zana was very eager to talk because this is a crusade. He's a policeman. And for him, what happened was both inhumane and possibly criminal. And he has taken it upon himself to be in a way, I suppose, a spokesman for his brother and for the others who lost their lives in the channel and to pursue those he believes may be responsible. Um, and so he was very willing to talk. Um, also evidently very sad um, one of the worst things is they do not have a body to mourn because three um, people um, are still missing. Three of the names we know are still missing, and that's Tuana, Zanyar, and another young man called Pashnir Wan, who was 18 as well. So for Zana, and one of the most heartbreaking things he said while I was talking to him was, please, can you ask a government or an organization or, or people, please, please, can they go and look for my brother's body? And he said, I know it's winter, people won't be on the beaches, but maybe people can see if they can find his body. Can you ask people to do that? And it's hard to know what to say um, because you can't really organize that. And it's been such a long time now. Um, but that is the hope he was clinging to. And that is why he wanted to speak to people, because I always feel it's such a terrible burden to an um, imposition to ask people to speak at times of such grief. But he was eager to speak because he wants to pursue both justice and he wants to find his brother's body.
You're listening to The 27, a podcast series from The New European. To support our journalism, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.